This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. So, I'm working a project in a very urban area. What do you think happens? What do you think happens? My starter burns out of my truck. Seven hours later, I get home with the tow truck after I drop it off. <laughs> it's a nightmare. That's why you only got me the last couple of minutes. But rest assured, we are back. And we are going strong. I just like listening to music sometimes. Amazing what they have on royalty-free music nowadays. Okay, we're gonna go on over to OSHA Region 5. An Ohio vinyl tile manufacturer faces 1.2 million plus in proposed penalties. And let's remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty and all this stuff are that we talk about are initial penalties, proposed penalties. These are negotiated down. If you need help in negotiating them down, give us a call, 845-269-5772. An Ohio vinyl, Ohio vinyl tile manufacturer faces $1.2 in proposed penalties, million dollars in proposed penalties after OSHA inspectors responded when a worker suffered severe injuries as a result of being caught in a machine. Last April, the incident marks the seventh injury at the facility since February 2017 related to the company's failure to follow required machine safety pro- uh, procedures. So they got kicked into the severe violator enforcement program. The April inspection found that the injured worker's finger was first caught in a rotating spindle on a plastic winding machine, and then their body was pulled around the machine spindle. The worker who had been on the job for just six weeks, again, new worker, new employee, and what do you do? Danger, 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 right? Suffered multiple severe injuries that required surgery. They, the company was cited for eight willful violations. Let's click on those. What are those eight? Let's go through them one by one. Gotta love that they put all this on the internet. So why do they put this on the internet? Is that uh, the story that I've always heard, that maybe one of our listeners can email me, is that they realize that a lot of companies are just going to go and uh, uh, a lot of companies are just going to go and that's it. Uh, They're going to pay the fine or whatever and just continue doing work. But if you add some social pressure, some shame and blame, maybe, then they're more likely to be compliant because nobody wants to be on the wall of shame. And let's remember, if it's on the internet, it's there forever. So when, uh, you know, it's there forever. And this started, I believe, during the Obama administration. And uh, I don't know how effective it's been or not, but I tell you what, I always tell people in the... uh, 
OSHA outreach courses that I teach for the university and in, uh, not do private uh, open enrollment, but I do, uh, private, uh, courses. And I also do it for a major university, uh, was that if you're going to interview for a company, look them up on the OSHA establishment search, especially if you're a safety professional and you see what their history is. So here we go. Violation number one, a serious violation. The employer did not ensure that the floor of each workroom was maintained in a clean manner. So this is basically a housekeeping. $10,000 plus uh, violation for housekeeping. Right? For a wet floor. Right? And oil residues on the floor. Citation number two. They really, I, I'm going to say that I said this last week when we went through this one uh, story. Somebody really pissed somebody off here. All right. I'm sorry. That's my read on here. Right. The employer did not ensure that steps are uniformly spaced or arranged for the rise of not more than 10 inches and a depth of not less than seven inches. So guess what? Uh, they were a uh, on or about um, uh, blah, blah, blah. Employees used a uh, utilized... I hate that word, utilized the mobile ladder stand to access the elevated work platforms and were exposed to trip and fall hazards at a maximum height of 58 inches and that the rise of the steps exceeded 10 inches and were not uniform. That's a $12,000 plus proposed fine. Here we have walking or working surface having an unprotected side or edge which was four feet. Remember, you're in general industry, so it's four feet or higher, not six feet or not five feet or not 10 feet or 15 or 30 feet. It's four feet. So uh, number 3B, uh, falling into dangerous equipment without a guardrail system or a travel restraint system. Number four, machine guards missing. And number five, another one, serious. No equipment guards on certain equipment. Number six, serious. So this was an obscure one. I've never heard of this one. Bolts and nuts or set screws used in shaft coupling extended beyond the flange or the coupling and were not covered with safety sleeves. So this is like a, uh, you can get caught on it, right? Walking through, right? No guards. Again, a guarding issue. And here's the willful. I was interested on this. Uh, what's the willful one? What do you... This is protective equipment was not used when necessary. Whenever hazards capable of causing injury or impairment were encountered. So this is one of the, one of the uh, new, for lack of a better word, violations in the top 10 violations. It's only been there for like the last three or four years. Basically, people not wearing PPE when that was required. Again, was there a PPE assessment done where we tried to go through and try to eliminate the hazards and everything else to go through that pyramid, right? So now we have an issue with that. That's basically, this is one of the major ones is that you go into a facility 
or you go into a uh, not a, and you go into a facility or you go to a construction site. People don't want to wear hard hats. People don't want to wear safety glasses. People don't want to do anything uh, on that. I heard it yesterday. Uh, I don't want to hear. We're hearing protection because I'm. It's uncomfortable. I don't want my guys to wear a harness inside a permit required confined space in accordance with federal law because it's not convenient, we feel. And then you ask, and it's like, okay, explain to me how. Oh, no, explain to me how you're going to get the guy out of the space then. Oh, well, uh, 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 I'm not sure. Okay, well, now we have an issue. All right. And that all comes in. Let's go story number two from OSHA. Federal appeals court finds a Pennsylvania poultry processing facility in contempt in contempt for failing to pay $162,000 in penalties and address safety violations. So federal court has found a certain company in contempt for failing to pay $162,000 in penalties after an inspection by the U.S. by OSHA found numerous safety hazards. So basically, in 2020, OSHA, uh, uh, well, going way back on that, right? Basically, they were assessed citations, and something happened, and they didn't pay. What could cause this sort of thing? A lot of things. Now, I doubt, and I highly doubt, a company got something from the Department of Labor and they just said, screw it. Um, we're not going to respond to these people. They're going to go away, blah, 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 blah. That's normally not what happens. So OSHA, let's walk through this. OSHA comes to your facility. They say, hi, I'm from the government and I am here to help. And they say, and, you know, most people, and they're like, oh, man, OSHA is here. We are here to help. This is why we are here. We are here to help you. Right? We were called in. We were referred in. We got a report. You reported a fatality. You reported a... Uh, uh, overnight hospitalization. We whatever we got a reference. You're on our frequent violator list. We are on our uh, 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 we're doing a focus type of inspection. You're right, we're on our focus list for this industry. They come in. They go and they give you their ID. They show it to you, and then they probably the first thing they're going to say is, "This is why we're here." Then it's going to be. Uh, do you have a safety plan? Can we see your OSHA 300 log? Who's in charge? All of that stuff. And then by the end of this process, where they go through, they might interview your employees and they might interview, uh, uh, look at your records. Then they get back to you and you have a closing conference and then they're walking around your facility, taking pictures. And hopefully you're taking the same pictures that they're taking and you're going through the whole thing. And then comes the at the end and what well, it would behoove you that if you go out with them that you have a crew of people behind you to try to resolve things on the spot if they could be resolved it might help to have a shop steward there it may help if you're if you're union shop all this stuff 
a whole entourage. You have to have a plan way ahead of time. And we help you put that plan together, a response plan. And then what happens? You go through and they say, okay, we are going to have a closing conference. They say, this is what we found. We found this. We found this. We're going to think about this. We're going to look at this. I have to refer this on up the line to see how we're going to handle this. Then you say, thank you very much. May I have your name, contact information. We look forward to working with you. Maybe offer them a glass of water, some coffee, some snacks. You know, if it's appropriate, we're not bribing the people, but you want to put guests in your office at your facility, treat them nice to get more. You get more with honey than with vinegar. You don't want to be like the roofer guy last week who said in that story that said, ah, the show must go on. And that's what was in the OSHA right, press release. Then what do you do? OSHA has roughly about six months to get back to you. More commonly, unless it's a very serious IDLH type of situation where they gotta get back to you immediately, they have to go and get back to you roughly, uh, they get back to you normally five months. Usually, more commonly five months and two weeks, right? Because they have six months, they gotta negotiate this, they gotta go through this whole thing, and you're going to, and you're going to get that. Now here's the question for you. This is why it's important to get the, that you give OSHA the right address and whoever handles the mail, you say, if you get something from the Department of Labor, either certified or not certified, if you get something from the Department of Labor, you have to go and you have to let me know, the person in charge, immediately, a phone call, a fax, an email, paper. Why? Because you need to have, you have 15 days to respond to this, whether you're going to contest it or not. If you don't contest it, all these uh, initial citations are final. If the person who's in charge of the mail doesn't look at the mail every freaking day or puts it on the side or goes on vacation for two weeks to Europe, or maybe some other exotic place like Mexico. They're going down to Cabo St. Lucas to visit Sammy Hagar. Guess what? You're not, uh, you know, you're not, uh, uh, you, then they come back. Oh, look at the ma- big stack of mail on the desk. My, the in, my in bin overfloweth. And what happens? You miss that 15 day week window or worse yet. Department of Labor, it looks like junk mail. Some of that junk mail we use, they throw it out in the garbage. And now you get into this situation here. And this is the situation. Chances are you're not getting out of this. I'm not going to say never. I never say never. But you're not getting out of this. So what happens is you need to go follow up. Train your employees. Train your... uh, Train everybody here, right? Train everybody, figure things out, alert them. Then you can probably avoid this situation because 
And again, when you're going to be responding to all of these people, you're going to be responding to the, uh, hold on. You're going to be responding to OSHA, right? Uh, you need to have your times right. You need to have everything. If you respond to them, what do you do? You make damn sure that you do it. Certify mail, hand delivery, with, and you have them sign for it with a receipt, fax, what have you, to make sure that they received it. Now, the other thing is this. You're going to, that you're going to request probably an informal conference, and you're going to talk it over with them. And this is where things everybody wants to send is at the closing conference. Okay, we're going to knock this amount off. We're going to vacate this. We're going to do this. We're going to, and that's nice and congenial. All right. When you start to get into, and this, and uh, there's going to be uh, consultants out there that are going to be really annoyed with me or pissed off even more than what they already are, uh, probably be going into this, is that you need to, uh, uh, if you, once you start to get into serious and willful violations, you probably need an attorney. My, my professional opinion with that. Let's take a break here, and we'll go into uh, some other stuff. Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. to safety wars tomorrow safety today okay let's talk a little bit of financial news and then we're going to go back to the safety okay the markets from some indexes were up some were down here we go Dow jones industrial 32033 s&p 500 is down 3807 NASDAQ down 10, 792.67. Russell 2000 is up 1806.32. Treasuries are 3.937 on the 10 year treasury. And Bitcoin is at 20,227. Crude oil hovering in the mid 80s at 88.57. It's up a little bit. And precious metals. 
You have gold at 1672, silver 1981, platinum 982.30, and that's down a little bit. Palladium down a little bit at 1974.50, and that's what we got on those. So here is a story from our neighbors in the north. A Bruce Jack, Bruce Jack, which is a mine, remains suspended after a fatality. Bruce Jack Mine in British Columbia remains suspended pending an investigation into the death of a worker from, con- from contracting partner blah, blah, blah. Um, right, so there was a fatality. The site incident management and mine rescue teams have been working around the clock, um, according to the CEO, with relevant authorities to ensure safe access to the incident location. No other details are there. It was a gold mine, apparently. So... Yeah, there is really nothing in here. Um, I just forgot to reread this story again. Uh, nothing in there. Now, what I'm, uh, believe it or not, New Jersey had uh, a mine, zinc mine, right? The Sterling Mine. That's why you have in North Jersey a sports team in the Frontier League called this, uh, the, uh, at, they play out of Augusta, New Jersey at the Skylands Arena called, and the company and the uh, team is called the Sussex County Miners. It's because Sussex County has a lot of mines. One of them uh, used to be, they're all closed now, as far as I know. There was a silver mine in Stokes State Forest. I actually went up and when I was a kid with my father, we found the silver mine. It's not secret, it's there and it's closed off. And I was able to get some silver ore, believe it or not. Okay, I was seven, right? On the outside, there was some, uh, still some silver ore uh, strewn about the whole place. It's probably all gone now. People probably took it, right? And uh, there was what up until, I believe it was 1986 or 87, there was a sterling mine over in uh, uh, Sterling, New Jersey, and they mined zinc in there. And... uh, now, some of the, it was a w- really interesting experience to go on a tour of that mine, uh, especially being a safety professional, because you got to see how they used to do safety in the mines. Now, so, for example, they would have a flame, right, in their hard hat, and if that flame started to get really bright, guess what? That meant you have an explosive atmosphere, and you should evacuate. If it starts to get really dim, that means they have an oxygen-deficient atmosphere, and there you got to go. This is the kind of stuff you hear about the canary in a coal mine. Guess what? That's what they had. So the mining environment, I have zero experience in except for my tour of the Sterling mine. But it was pretty, uh, they talked about all different types of safety issues there and how things were managed back in the day. Uh, A lot of tragedy in those mines. No, it's a necessary job. At least in my opinion, it's a necessary job. But it's really important that the miners really work as safely as possible, especially since they're in remote areas. And if you get hurt, it's a problem. Uh, 
Now, if you get seriously hurt, a first aid is a first aid. However, anything more than that where you need medical attention, it's a long drive. It's a long flight. What have you. Uh, that's why when I watch certain series like uh, on the Discovery Channel, right, and I look and I just shake my head at some of this stuff because it's obviously unsafe and, you know, they're mines. So this is a delivery person uh, in Missouri was found dead in a yard after a suspected mauling by two dogs. Uh, basically, the delivery worker delivered stuff and it was in a gray truck, so that tells you what company it was from. And uh, what they ended up doing was the dogs ended up killing the guy, and they found him two a couple of hours later there. Uh, according to the sheriff, Scott Childers, the animal bites were a factor in the, in the death. They don't mention in the article I read what the... Uh, uh, what kind of dogs they were. So it's still under investigation. Okay. This is actually from, again, up here in the Northeast. So uh, there was a fatality up in Massachusetts outside of Holyoke. In case you've ever heard of Mount Holyoke, Massachusetts, Mount Holyoke is a university. It used to be all girls. One of my best friends, one of the original Ivy League League universities, one of my friends is very involved with that. Uh, But anyway, this has nothing to do with the university. This is with a cannabis cultivation plant. So uh, essentially a worker... uh, uh, got killed from the hazards of ground cannabis dust. It sounds like something like an organic dust toxic syndrome type of thing with this. What it comes down to is this. You have workers. You have, we, we're all familiar with exposure standards. If you're a safety professional, right? So you have chemicals out there, and I'm told, right, and I, there's an often quoted statistic. I don't know... Uh, I don't know. No, I haven't sat down and, uh, you know. Oh, hold on. All right. Uh, do do I got thrown off here. I missed. I missed something today. So, all right. So I didn't want to go into this, but might as well go into it. It's worth uh, the discussion. Uh, so you have exposure standards. I never counted the number of chemicals out there. All right. Uh. But there's something like 85,000 chemicals. That's often what I hear in the workplaces. If you look at the exposure standards, and I mean the threshold limit values from the ACGIH, OSHA PELs, and the NIOSH REL's, 
There is only a small percentage of chemicals that actually have exposure standards. In lieu of those, you have to go through warning properties. So, for example, is it an irritant? That would indicate an overexposure. Does it cause an allergic reaction? For a particular worker, that would cause, that would be another one. And there's other indicators like an LD50 uh, thing. You don't want to get to that. And then an adjustments so or you need some type of uh, certified industrial hygienist, toxicologist, or other professional to make the evaluation what that is. One of the things that is not, and I mean not included in these exposure standards and everything are the, uh, the uh, 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 biologicals and certain dusts. So, for example, in this case with cannabis dust, and I'm not involved in the investigation here, it would probably be regulated as dust, as total dust or respirable dust. Total dust, respirable dust meaning the fraction of dust that is less than uh 10 microns in diameter, and then all the other dust greater than 10 microns in diameter that are all airborne. So what happens is dust companies, they have a dusty environment. I always recommend an industrial hygiene audit where they could go in there and they, oh, this is the level of dust that we have. This way, and it's a cheap enough analysis to run because right now with a fatality here, Right, that they're dealing with here, that that's a problem. That may, no, or anybody else, where you don't have any air monitoring data, you don't have any air sample data, you don't have any assessments done, you have no industrial hygiene data, you have nothing. You essentially have nothing. All right, here, uh, with uh, with uh, with this. All right, and now you have a you have a. Uh, You have a situation. I had an employer. I, I used to work in warehousing when I was a uh, working my way through college. Right, every summer, me and my brother Wally worked together at a warehouse. And when I got into the safety industry, I called up the safety director of the warehouse and said, "Hey, you may want to do an industrial hygiene audit there, just as a chief insurance type thing." All right. Uh, so we go in there, we do some air sampling for dust. We go in there, we do some noise monitoring and everything else. Ah, you're nuts, blah, 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 blah. You know, you get the F-bombs thrown at you and everything else. A couple years later, the warehouse wants to close. And this is a union shop, a Teamster-run shop. And I don't blame the Teamsters. I would have done the same thing. What do you think they ended up with the severance package? They said, well, we got exposed to hazardous levels of noise and we had threshold shifts. Company had no way of proving it otherwise. No industrial hygiene monitoring, no noise monitoring, no uh, uh, audiometric, nothing, nada, zero. And what did it end up costing them? A lot of money. That was added to the dust. What do you think happened? Now, they, oh, well, we got exposed to hazardous levels of dust. I can tell you about 75% of the people there smoked. This was the late 80s, early 90s. Everybody, like 90% of the people smoked. 
And now they're screaming and yelling about lung damage from the dust there. Again, no industrial hygiene monitoring. What long story short, everybody got a check for bodily damage when that place closed. So not only did they have financial issues, believe me, the financial issues were immense, but now they have issues with everything else. You have no data. Fast forward to this. I'm not saying they didn't have data or not, but I'm sure that if they had some type of air monitoring data, they'd be in much better shape. The problem here also is with biological, with biologicals. So the biologicals always present a risk because what will make me sick will not make other people sick and vice versa and all of this stuff. So when you have mold in your working environment, right? Quote, unquote, black mold, right? Oh, I, oh no, all right. And all that other stuff that's out there. And uh, let me point this out, and I'll say this kindly this time, right? When you have a workers that have access to the internet or family members that have access to the internet, what do you have? You got a problem. Well, what kind of problem do you have, Jim? Problem is that one man, one internet connection, you could, uh, you're, then they, they start looking up mold. Mold this, mold that, mold closet, blah, blah, blah. And there is no, there are no standards for it. It's not like benzene, where you know when you have a permissible exposure limit, OSHA permissible exposure limit of uh, one part per million. You don't have that with mold. You have professional judgment. There may be some standards out there in some states. I'm not familiar with all 50 states and all jurisdictions out there. There may be a jurisdiction with some levels somewhere. But what you're looking for are colony-forming units. You're looking, well, this makes you sick. That one doesn't make, guess what? Now you have a problem. The issue we came up with with the uh, viruses, specifically coronavirus, is that there was no methodology that was verified at the beginning of the pandemic. So nobody knew what was a safe level. They knew that we knew coronavirus was airborne, but there was no standard for it. There was no standard to even sample that in air. Very difficult to sample that on surfaces. So what we ended up doing was had a zero threshold with uh, the coronaviruses, right, or anything else. So any uh, level of coronavirus, any level of anything was no good. And this is one of the reasons why we had issues with everything here, because we had developed protocols with SARS, right, back in in the mid-2000s, that now we have to apply to 300-plus million people. But SARS, they never planned on applying it to that many people. So now we have a problem here with all around those standards, what's good, what's safe, what's not good, and all this other stuff. And these are some of the uh, things that are in there. But I got to tell you what, the worst thing is when you have no data. There's no data with this stuff. No, what do you do? Uh, It sucks. I'm going to be honest with you. I hate to be in that situation with any uh, client out there 
where, hey, you're, you should have done air monitoring. I'm dealing with one of the job sites with a sub. I'm working for, this, uh, uh, for the general contractor, and one of the subs was involved in respirable crystalline silica uh, work. Uh, you know, uh, work. They were doing some stuff. All right? And what happens here, right? We, no, we have, uh, you know, we have multiple issues here. When the rest, I said, okay, you're going to need to do two things. Either you're going to have to wear respirators or we do wear respirators for a short period of time. And then we run out and we do respirable uh, crystalline silica sampling and we come up out with air monitoring results and we're, or air sample results, and we're able to determine that you don't need to wear respirators. All right? Well, no, no, we're not going to do that. I said, dude, how long have you been doing this? I've been doing this for 15 years. No one has ever told us to wear respirators. I said, well, here's the respiratory, a respirable crystalline silica standard. This is what it is. Why haven't you been doing this for five years? This has been, or seven years, whatever it was, the amount of time. Well, nobody ever says we have to do it. Well, you run a company, right? You have 100 people working for you, and none of them are aware. I said, well, this is what it is. You're going to have to wear them on this job until we do the air sampling. This harkens back to our conversation last week where a school was alleged, allegedly has pesticides and polychlorinated biophenols, PCBs in it. And they only did, and they re, and they realized that they might have a problem. And in the spring, when they realized that they might have a problem, they only did like radon testing and a radiation scan. So, well, that we don't have a problem. They didn't do get out in front of the problem and investigate everything because now they have egg on their face. This is the same kind of situation. You want to get out ahead of all, everything. Five years ago or seven, whatever this, uh, the crystal, crystal and silica standard came out, they uh, it would have been very cheap for them to run air samples. Believe me, it was a lot cheaper to do sampling when this came, uh, before this came out. Then they would have had all the data together and they would have been protected for five years and educated themselves a little bit. Now, I don't know, they might have had five years of exposing their employees to something. Guess what? This is you know this really matters for a lot of these uh, for your employee. You got to get out there ahead of things. Do some sampling. Do some cheap insurance. There was a environmental attorney in Central Jersey many years ago, who every other year it was their policy to get in a company to do a complete indoor air quality assessment an industrial hygiene assessment. Now you're going to say, well, what was that attorney doing? The attorney owned real estate and the attorney uh, uh, was an office building and there was maybe five or 600 people in the building. And what happened was uh, every other year, going back from time immemorial, since they got the building, they did an indoor air quality assessment every other year. And the company went in there and did everything. One year it was my company that I worked used to work for went in there did all the indoor air quality assessments uh, for them. It took about three or four days. It was multi-story building, and we sampled for the regular uh, parameters: carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, 
uh, any type of odors, no relative humidity, thermal occupancy stuff. That's a fancy word for temperature. And uh, we just went through the whole building, assessed what the hazards might have been, didn't write to know inventory throughout the building of any chemicals, anything like that. And they weren't telling us something. We are like, well, why are we doing all this crap, right? And it turned out that five people in the building in the last two years since the last assessment had come down with cancer, five different types of cancer. It was lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, all right? So we know that lung cancer is very common in smokers, all right? We know that women are, no, I, I don't know what the number is, but uh, I can look it up real quick, but uh, women uh, get breast cancer at high levels, right? Men get breast cancer too, but it's predominantly a female illness, right? female condition. Prostate cancer, only a male illness, but that was uh, no, something like one in seven or one in eight men get prostate cancer. It's a... Uh, Right. It's a common cancer. Basically, I, I spoke to my own personal doctor. My own personal doctor said, Jim, pretty much everybody gets it, especially doing the, in the type of work you do, right? So that's why I get the PSA test uh, twice a year, right? Sometimes the reason why I don't have it more is I forgot to forget to tell the doctor. But basically... We were able to go back for years with this law firm and got a toxicologist together. And it was a toxicologist that everybody knows. It was the one who did the autopsy on Elvis. And he said, look, he looked into medical histories. We got permission to get medical histories and everything else. And he said, look, there's no evidence of anything in the building that could cause these cancers. And guess what? Saved a lot of money in lawsuits. Saved a lot of money with workers' comp. Saved a lot of money, <clears throat> pardon me, with the workers. You're showing good faith. You're you're you know, concerned about their health, concerned about their safety, and you're also protecting your own ass in this. They're out in front of all this stuff. And that is where what you need to do. You're fighting the safety war. I... Recently read Cindy Decker and Todd Conklin's book, Safety Differently, and they had a very good point here. Had a lot of good points. It was a book of good points. And what it basically said was, safety is unlike all the other Ill industries. All right? It's all it's different. And it's like, you're a operations person. You see a problem. You fix the problem. You move on to the next problem. And you never have to really deal with the previous problem again. Maybe you have to maintain things. Maybe you got to do it. But you basically don't have to deal with it. And, the, and a lot of the conflict comes between safety professionals and operations people because the operations people... Uh, don't understand that safety is never-ending. Safety is not something you do, right? And you do safety. You don't, you know, it's not checklists. It's not training. 
It's not any of that, right? That's how safety is often managed, and we're forced to manage it because of uh, regulatory requirements, legal requirements, industry standard stuff. Safety is going down, talking to your coworker and saying to him, hey, Larry, how you doing today? Hey, Larry, how's your job? Hey, Larry, is there anything I can help you with? You're being their servant. How do you do your job, Larry? How do you, no, how do we do this, uh, Frank? How do we do that? And you go through it again and again and again and again. And you go out there and you figure things out. That's what safety is. You're constantly trying to learn how to be a one-man or one-woman learning team here. And you're out there identifying things. And you're trying to improve things. And things might come up. And you coach people. And you do all this other soft skill stuff. Yeah, we have the hard skill. We just talked about exposure uh, standards here and everything for the last 20 minutes or so. That's what this is. That goes a long way right to working safely because if they're more if you have this relationship they're more likely to come with you to you with a problem when i was on my first interview with jay allen he was shocked i and i think the listeners were shocked too and i had try to have a relationship with my coworkers they're willing to come up to me with anything you say what do you mean jim anything i had people coming up to me say you know jimmy I got, know that uh, girl last week I met? I said, yeah, I got her pregnant. What do I do, right? Oh, uh, Jim, I'm having this problem with this, blah, blah, blah. And they come to you with their other problems outside of work personal, right? That's a good leading indicator that maybe you're being, uh, right, being uh, uh, proactive. We had this other thing where I was working the night shift on a project in Logan, Ohio. You go look up Logan, Ohio, and find out there's only one manufacturing plant in town. There, what what it is, and uh, Fayette County, and you go in. I think it was Fayette. No, Fayette is uh, Fayette is in uh, Kentucky, but I forget what county it is. This is, and I go in there, and guess what? Everybody's out there. They're homesick. This is a shit job. I'm sorry for. Uh, uh, now for three months, we're there every day, working seven days, week, 12 hours a day with no regard to the fatigue standard. Anyway, we're in there and guess what? People want home cooked meals. So I went around to the crew and it was a small crew of five people. Say, Hey, what do you like? One guy says, I like chili. I said, you know what? I know I can make a good chili. I love chili. Oh, I like, uh, I like Asian food, the guy says. I, no, I'm in the mood for General Tso's chicken. Guess what? I learned how to make General Tso's chicken. And we had, every week we had uh, uh, meals together, right? Cooked by me. Every week we would have something different, and it was good. And then before you know it, right, you're building up a rapport, a relationship with these folks. And then after a while, they're like, you know what? We... What we want to work safe. We want hey, if there's a problem, I ask them to do something. Yeah, and then they have these things they tell me if something's not going right and everything else. And what happened one day was we had a major problem. We had a major issue there, 
And I had to, and this is one of the only seven times where I actually had to shut the job down. And it wasn't from anything they were doing. It was from something the day shift was doing that caused a huge, uh, an unbelievable safety hazard. And uh, guess what? They were more likely to do it because I wasn't a safety friend, uh, manager. I was a safety friend. I was there. I was on them. I was with the soft skills pushing that. And like I said last week, that's one of the reasons why I had to leave corporate America. In my opinion is that I had soft skills and I was probably undermining my managers on a certain level because they were more likely, the people were more likely to come to me with problems and so, because I would try to work with them for with, towards a solution. And I don't think my managers liked that very much after a while. So that's, uh, you know, I went off the rails into the weeds here, but all from a cannabis story uh, where it's important to get out ahead of all of this stuff. Always to get out uh, ahead. So we're going to take a break for a minute. I'm going to, I got to get something to drink here. And we will be back. Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com Is your safety training old, stale, and hackneyed? Is your safety trainer still preaching a warped version of behavior-based safety? How about safety training that actually addresses your hazards in your workplaces and is not standardized baloney from 25 years ago? Contact the Safety Wars team at safetywars.com or call Jim Polzel at 845-269-5772. Remember, if you're receiving this message, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces. Okay, we're back. Give me a second here. Let me put the other commercial on. In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. Okay, we're back. All right. Here we have, uh, not often that I run out of things to talk about, as everybody knows. And uh, most of this is done without notes. So, we're going to be talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin. He has been named the chief exorcist by the head of the country's Orthodox Church as the Kremlin seeks to redefine the goals of its invasion in the Ukraine. So, 
Basically, this is what the story is. Putin started to, regardless of what your opinion is on uh, on uh, the war in the Ukraine here, right? He invaded the neighboring country, right? Blah, blah, blah. He used the word denazification. He said the goal of his special military operation was denazification. Well, things haven't worked out very good for Vlad here in the, since February, right? So we're eight months into this, a little bit over eight months, and he said, "You know, we gotta start. We start with the, uh, with the. Uh, uh, he's starting with the. You're right. We conscript people. We gotta escalate this. They're threatening nuclear war. They're threatening, and we'll have more on that in a minute, and everything else. And what happens?" He did not say he changed his tune, like with everything else. So basically, he he has now say, stated that they are desatanizing the Ukraine, right? And basically, uh, the Russian government. Um, this is not opinion. This is what's been widely reported. Uh, is very closely associated with the Russian Orthodox Church. Or, right, so one one hand washes the other, sort of thing. Here is my read on this, and that's my opinion on that. So, since they've been saying that this is uh, desatanization, the uh, uh, Russian Orthodox Church has named him the chief exorcist, according to some reports. So I think, you know, I, I don't know. I, as everyone knows, I'm very religious. I'm very spiritual. I like to call myself that, but I concern myself that. But it's one of those things, you don't take that. I, I don't take that. That's not an exorcist. It's not something that you fancy about light, that you're doing an exorcism, right? That's got to be done by a trained person priest, minister, rabbi, imam, even. I, my understanding is that uh, Muslims have a, a, a right of exorcism also. So you can't uh, just throw things around. Uh, this is getting more and more bizarre here. Putin has also said he has not, that you know, uh, that they're not going to do any of this nuclear stuff or anything else, and that and he blames the West for, Escalating this. Also, we'll end with this. Vladimir Putin says dirty bomb claims were disinformation uh, so they could uh, confuse NATO. I don't know what to say on, on, on any of this stuff anymore. Like going back to Disaster Response Month or Disaster Preparation Month in September, we're not in control of these situations. But what can we be in control of? We can be in control of all what we do and how we react, who we put into power. We In the United States, we have less than two weeks left for an election. Who we vote for, where we live, how we manage things, that's what we have control with. And that's all part of fighting that their safety war. So good night, everybody. 
for Safety Wars and the Safety FM Network. We'll see you tomorrow. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.